We often close our services with this benediction, this good word. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The Apostles Paul's glorious benediction in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Why repeat this benediction? Because, friends, it sends us and reminds us to be laser-focused on the power of God to do the impossible work in our lives, the work of restoration, the work of redemption in our lives, in our families' lives, in our neighbors' lives. He has exceeding power to do more than all we think or imagine. And the Christian life is about setting your eyes on his power, not looking to your own false sense of strength and power. Laser focus on God's power to do the unimaginable, to do the impossible, this reality is the running theme in our current sermon series. Last week, our associate pastor, Dylan Colley, did a great job, kicked us off in a sermon series in Ezra called Return from Exile. And as these chapters unfold that detail this return, we are wa watching, witnessing a miracle unfold. God moving the hearts of kings and people and his subjects opening their hands, providing what they need so that God's people can make their way back to Jerusalem and to reestablish worship in that place. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ezra chapter 1. In the Bibles we provided in, on your chairs, you can find Ezra 1 on page 389. Ezra 1, page 389. And if you're here today and you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. So when you walked into the lobby, there are three bookcases. The one furthest from the door has hard copy black Bibles, please take one. If you have a friend who needs one, grab one for that person as well. Last week, Dylan preached Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4, laid the foundation of this series. And in that sermon, he unpacked the decree of King Cyrus, who is the king of the Persian Empire, the known superpower at that time in history, they had just defeated the Babylonians, the previous superpower, and so now King Cyrus is in town. He holds the power. He releases God's people. He's a servant of God. His heart, his mind is in the hand of the Lord, and we see him extending favor to God's people. So Dylan preached on the decree of Cyrus. This morning, I'm going to preach on verses 5 through 11 to finish off chapter 1, and we see the execution of the decree. So we see the decree stated in verses 1 through 4, and then verses 5 through 11, we see the decree executed. So let's read Ezra 1, verses 5 through 11. Then rose the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus 
The king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Midradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Here is the thrust of this sermon, the truth that I hope to convince you of. God is a restorer. God is a restorer. He alone holds the power to do the work of restoration in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our world. God is a restorer. We're going to structure this message in two parts. Here's the first part. God provides the people for the work of restoration. God provides the people for the work of restoration. And then secondly, we'll see God provides the material for the work of restoration. God provides the material for the work of restoration. So first, God provides the people for the work of restoration. We see this in verse 5. The author of the book of Ezra writes, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. What is God doing? He is stirring, moving people to go and join in this work of restoration in their homeland, in Jerusalem. God is providing people to engage in the work of restoration. He had preserved a remnant in exile in Babylon. Babylon is then taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus. And by God's grace, Cyrus releases them, gives them favor the decree of Cyrus, sometime around 539 B.C. And notice they go in family units. The author says, heads of father, father's houses. So the, the normal sociological divisions of the time, they just went in family units. Heads of father's houses, clans, they began to go back. Those that God had preserved, the remnant, they began to migrate back. To Jerusalem to engage in this work of restoration, the rebuilding of the temple, the reestablishing of worship among God's people. And notice who prompts them to return. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred. That phrase we've seen before. Dylan unpacked it last week. Who did God first stir in his spirit? King Cyrus. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Same exact phrasing. King of Persia. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Friends, 
No work of restoration in this life can happen unless God stirs human hearts. No genuine work of restoration can happen unless God stirs human hearts. Salvation. Unsaved loved ones, neighbors who desire to be restored in Christ, you cannot manufacture that on your own effort. It's a work of God that he... What a timely illustration. You don't have power to do it. God does the power. He does the work in the human heart for salvation, for church planting. A short five months ago, we had the opportunity and the privilege to join with a church in Bedford to get it started, Trinity Church of Bedford. God stirs people's hearts to go and serve as core members. God stirs people's hearts to hear the gospel, to, to, to go to that church and to be redeemed by the great grace of God. No genuine work of restoration can happen apart from the stirring of God in the Spirit. Emphasizes the priority of, of prayer. For how do we connect with the power of God? It's through dependent prayer. Prayer is the posture of dependence, acknowledging that you can't do it, I can't do it, but God can do it. And we plead with him to pour out his power in our own lives and in people's lives in our community, in our church, in our neighborhood. No great work of restoration happens apart from God stirring. And one of the ways we connect with him stirring is through prayer. God stirs both individuals and communities that's what we see here in this revival, this return from exile, is not an individual work. Yes, God worked among individuals, but those individuals grouped up to form a corporate restoration. That's the nature of revival or awakening in church history. In the 1730s and 1740s, there was what was called the Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening. Masses of people are hearing the gospel and turning to Christ in genuine faith and repentance. George Whitfield crossing the Atlantic from England to the colonies and back again preaching the gospel to masses of people, coal miners. You could look out among these coal miners and you could see streaks going down their dusty faces as they hear the gospel preached. Jonathan Edwards, key in that work as well, writing theology, preaching it in his pulpit, in Northampton, Western Mass. So God is working in individuals, but those individuals 
link up with other individuals, and suddenly a whole town, regions are transformed by the work of God. That's what we see here. This is the, the nature of genuine revival is individuals spilling over into communities, to towns, and to regions. This is the work of God. It's an awakening that we see here in the book of Ezra. God returning his people, stirring their hearts, creating a hunger in them for genuine worship of the Lord. The Lord must stir human hearts for any work of restoration to take place. So as you consider your own life, maybe you're here today and you're not sure where you stand spiritually. You're not sure where you stand with Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that you're here. And I want to invite you as a friend, as a pastor, just to take the next step. Keep reading God's word. Call out to him. Seek him. Say, Lord, I want to know you. Reveal yourself to me. Stir my heart with faith and with love for you. Maybe you have a loved one that you want, you're desperate to see them come to know Jesus. Seek the Lord on their behalf. Plead for the Lord to stir their hearts. No great work of restoration happens apart from God stirring the human heart. God provides the people for the work of restoration. Number two, God provides the material for the work of restoration. We see this in verses 6 through 11. These are some details that if you're honest and if I'm honest, in my Bible reading plan, I might be tempted to just kind of blitz right through. But there's something so important that we see here about God's character. Verse 6, And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. What we see here is God providing the material for the work of temple building, that restoration that will center around a rebuilt temple. God provides resources in three ways. First, he provides favor with the Persians. The people that that Jewish remnant lived among suddenly started opening their hands and their wallets to them. Verse 6, all who were about them aided them. In other words, their neighbors who lived about them, among them, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, things in their own households. They're giving to God's people to go and use in the work of the temple building. All those precious materials that will be needed, the neighbors are now favorably disposed to the Israelites. Beasts and with costly wares. This fulfills the decree of Cyrus that Dylan unpacked last week. Ezra chapter 1, verse 4, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, that is in Persia, be assisted by the men of his place, their Persian neighbors, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts. 
as Cyrus stated it, so it happened here in verse 6. And this ties us into a key biblical theological theme that runs the course of Scripture. A key theme that spans redemptive history and reveals the character of God. It's the plunder as provision for worship theme. The plunder as provision for worship theme. Let me just take you on this tour across the Bible. In Exodus chapter 12, God moves Egyptians to be open-handed to his people as they're about to cross the Red Sea and reestablish, well, establish for the first time worship in the promised land. This is what God does. Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. God is moving, stirring the hearts of the neighbors of the Israelites there in Egypt to be open-handed to them. And it's that gold, that silver, those precious materials that they will take and then construct the tabernacle under Moses' leadership. So what, what is happening? God goes into the neighbors of his people, makes them favorably disposed, giving them the materials they need for the work of building, constructing a place of worship. Next stop, 1 Chronicles 26, David and Solomon in preparation to build the temple. This Shalomoth and his brothers were in charge of all the treasuries of the dedicated gifts that David, the king, and the heads of the father's houses, and the officers of the thousands and the hundreds, and the commanders of the army had dedicated. From spoil, won in battles, they dedicated gifts for the maintenance of the house of the Lord. David had won battle after battle. They took the spoil or the plunder, and they used that plunder from the nations in the construction and the maintenance of the temple that Solomon, David's son, would ultimately build. Next stop, here, Ezra 1. God makes the Persians favorably disposed to his people. Gold, silver, costly wares, precious material. God moves these neighbors to give to his people to construct a place of worship. And then we come to the New Testament. How does this play out in the New Testament, how does God go into enemy territory and plunder them, take back what rightly is his to build a spiritual house of worship? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 and 11 and 12. Paul says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Jesus dies and rises again. And in so doing, he takes back what was rightly his. What are the captives? It's you and I and every other sinner who will repent and turn to Christ. He enters Satan's territory. He releases the captives and he leads this procession out of bondage. And of those captives, he gives gifts to them. For what purpose? He gave 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists and shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Jesus goes into enemy territory. He plunders Satan, his household, takes back what rightly belongs to him, his people. He gives gifts to those people, and each one of them are used for the building up of not a physical place, but a spiritual place. That is the church, the place where worship happens in the New Testament, is a place where God's people gather. A spiritual household is constructed. So this theme of God plundering, taking back what is rightly his, using that for worship. Exodus all the way through the New Testament with Jesus. By faith in Christ's conquering work on the cross and through his resurrection, friend, you and I become part of that spiritual household. We become a living stone that Jesus, the master mason, puts together in a spiritual household for his glory, for worship. So if you would trust in Christ, you become a living stone built together into a spiritual household for the glory of God, the worship of his people. That is the invitation here. Jesus goes, takes you from captivity to sin, frees you, leads you, gives you gifts so that you can then contribute to his worship in his church. So the first source of material is from the Persian neighbors. The second source is generosity among Jews, among the remnant themselves. Verse 6, all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. This is almost a, a little parenthetical note. The Jews were freely offering to this work as well. We saw it last week. These are free will offerings that Jewish people would give, would contribute to this work. And so part and parcel of this work of restoration, gathering the material, is faithful Jews were just contributing out of their own free will. The Jewish remnant who returned gave willingly to the work of restoration. Friends, it is a good thing to give to the work of the Lord. We see it throughout the pages of Scripture. God's people give towards God's work. And it is a privilege. They don't give begrudgingly. They give willingly. It's a free will offering. They give cheerfully. They give generously. We are invited, as Dylan just led us through in a time of offering, regularly to just give, to open our hands, which is a way of saying, these things are not my gods. You are my God. I trust you to do with these things what you desire. That's essentially what, a, what, what offering is. It's a heart check. What do you ultimately trust in? I trust in the Lord God who owns all this and who's going to take it and multiply it for his work of restoration in this world. It is a good thing to give to the work of the Lord. And some of the remnant gave willingly to the work, not under compulsion, willingly. They gave cheerfully, not begrudgingly. And why did they give? Because they understood that God was a gracious gift giver. You see, our giving is a derived giving. It flows from a conscious understanding that God has given this to me. 
He owns all of it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Anything that you or I have has come from him. You're not the original owner. You're a steward. God owns it all, and we will give an account. So it's an invitation to be generous because he has been generous to us. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Trusting in Christ taps you into a spiritual treasure house. And the treasures there in Christ far surpass any earthly treasure you and I will ever get our hands on. Life with Christ, satisfaction with Jesus, knowing him, walking with him, loving him, and being loved by him. True treasure. He's been generous to us. Therefore, we can open our hands and be generous to his work that others might come into contact with that great spiritual treasure as well. Three sources of material provision, the local Persian neighbors, the Jewish remnant freely giving. Thirdly, and finally, King Cyrus. King Cyrus himself. Let's look again at verses 7 through 11. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. Cyrus takes the treasures that were in his kingly storehouses and he sends them with God's people to the right place, the place they were taken from. Where were these treasures from? The author of Ezra tells us Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had ransacked the temple when he conquered Jerusalem in 586 B.C., ransacked the temple, took all those treasures, all those precious materials, and took them back to his temple under his gods. It's this rich historical picture here of treasure-taking. Ancient kings who conquered other kingdoms, they would go into the temple of the conquered people and ransack it, take the idols, the figurines, the precious materials there that were symbolic of what the people worshipped, would gather all up and take it back to that king's temple, his own king, his own temple, the conquering king's temple. Why? What was it symbolic of? Our God is greater than your God. We are taking yours, bringing it into our temple because our God is greater. It was a, a symbol of power among the conquering king and the God that he trusted in. Notice what's happening here. The reverse is happening. Cyrus rises to power. He sees the, the, the treasures from Jerusalem in his storehouse. What does he do? Oh, Israel, here you go. Your God is greater. Take them back to where they belong. Your God is greater. It's a reversal of what happened in the ancient Near East. Your God is greater. All those materials went back to the place of worship of the Lord God, Yahweh. It's a powerful statement that God is greater. He is the conquering king, and his temple is being reestablished. Worship is being reestablished. The majority of our passage here has this minutia of pots and pans and vessels and censers. Why the minutia? Why the detail? 
What is the author of Ezra trying to get across to us? Again, if you're reading this in your own Bible time, you're going to glaze right over this. What is the author of Ezra emphasizing with this detail, the granular detail? He's emphasizing this. The God of Israel is a restorer. He takes what was lost and brings it back to its rightful place. He mends what is broken. He gives hope to the hopeless. Let me read for you the words of the prophet Jeremiah about these vessels, these materials. Jeremiah 27, verses 21 and 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried away to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then, under King Cyrus, I will bring them back and restore them to this place. When those first readers would come across this text in Ezra, they would be reminded of God's faithful promise through Jeremiah from the past. It's happening. Restoration is happening. God is restoring what was lost, what was taken. God is a restorer. He alone does the impossible work of restoration. So can I ask you, in what state do you find yourself this morning? What mess have you made of your life? What habitual sin do you keep returning to, expecting a different result? Our sin always overpromises and always underdelivers. And have you begun to believe that that sin defines you, that you're never going to get up and out of that? Friend, God is a restorer. He takes the mess of our lives and He makes something beautiful for his glory, and for our good. Do you believe that? In what ways are you hurting? Are you longing? Are you in need of repair and restoration? There is only one who has the power and the authority to carry out that work of restoration in your life. Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for you and for me, and who rose from the grave, conquering our sin, conquering its consequence, death, offering forgiveness and everlasting life to all who will trust in him. How are our lives put back together again? Not by picking ourselves up from our bootstraps and doing it on our own, but by, from that place of spiritual bankruptcy, looking to Christ and finding spiritual treasure in him. Look away from yourself and look unto Christ. He is the one who restores you. Pray on behalf of others in your life who need Christ, that God would move and work, bring them to a realization of their need, and put them back together. Do the work of restoration. He alone has the exceedingly great power to do it. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly more than all we ask, think, or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have exceeding power to do beyond what we ask or imagine.
Lord, all of us come here today facing need, coming to grips with our own frailty, our brokenness, our habitual sin, our need of a Savior. God, I pray that we would look entirely unto you. We would look away from ourselves. We would see the folly of self-reliance, and we would be captivated by Christ-reliance. Do the work of restoration in our lives, in our families, in this church, in our town, and in our world for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.